House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. This book I found to be very um, informative. It, I, I learned a lot um, even after seeing the Ben Stiller Showtime series. Uh, this really surprised me. So um, we've got the author here. And we're going to talk about his book, Danamora. So, Charles Gardner, thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Al. Thank you for having us. So, now, Charles, let's start with you. How did how did you get involved in writing uh, the book on Danamora? Like, how, where did that come from for you, and and how did you put it together? Well, understand um, as the escape unfolded back in uh, 2015. Um, I had just uh, recently had retired from the New York State Department of Corrections. So um, basically, um, I was uh, freshly retired out of the New York State Department of Corrections. Um, and then lo and behold, this escape takes place. And literally, it's happening in my backyard. Um, Denimora, the prison, uh, Clinton Correctional, located in uh, the little village of Denimora, is probably 30 miles as the crow flies from my backyard. And ultimately, the uh, pursuit of these two individuals, these two escape killers, would end up in literally my front yard. Um, so geographically, um, I was in the right place at the right time, uh, writing about uh, events that took place uh, right in my own neighborhood type of a thing, uh, resulting from an industry that I had worked for a quarter of a century. So... Um how did um you know before i mean most people probably know the story but before we kind of go through some of it um how does it make you feel um as being in that business when something like this happens like when there's a prison break and and it really um um for me i think the the news made it really look like it was all about the people that worked there that let the that instigated to get them out like that's kind of how it it kind of looked on the media. Um, Correct. So how does that... Correct. But so, what, so what's your opinion on that? Well, the, the, the media, of course, unfortunately, is only as smart as the press releases given to them from the people in charge. But uh, unfortunately, when you get right down to the, the nuts of this whole escape, Clinton Correctional Facility, New York State's largest maximum security prison, had not seen an escaped uh, inmate in over a century. So, so what's been going on at Clinton Correctional for the last uh, 100 years has obviously been working. But unfortunately, as a result of state cutbacks, the premise of doing more with less, uh, bureaucrats making decisions on cutting security posts and cutting uh, posts that were at one time there and no longer being filled uh, resulted in kinks in the armor at Clinton Correctional. Um, Richard Matt and David Sweat were able to look at that overall facility, find the weakness in that facility, and exploit it. After approximately 133 days of scratching, chipping, cutting and then digging their way out of that correctional facility, they were able to breach the 30-foot wall of that uh, maximum security prison and make their way to uh, freedom. And thus, we ended up with New York State's largest manhunt ever. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> now, um, 
with with these two characters, um, the first thing I can say is after seeing the series, and I've been through another book with another person that wrote about a year ago, and um, like I, with your book, it, it kind of gives a real it gives the real goods on these uh, these two guys uh, right from the get-go. You kind of get to know what they did and how they've done it, and you kind of... Because uh, I found that, um, and we talked about this off-air, I found that um, the series uh, didn't really... It didn't make them look like bad people. It may, maybe a little bit, but not... You know, they, Stiller almost was making them you feel, you know, you like you wanted them to escape. I don't know. I just yeah, I I, I agree with you. Um, and, and everyone has their own way that they want to tell the story. And, and unfortunately, um, I don't I don't agree with the way um, Mr. Stiller did his his portray of this incident. For the simple reason is is he doesn't give you a, a clear picture as to what you're dealing with here. Please understand that the people that are incarcerated at Clinton Correctional, most of those people are in there for big time. They're, they're going to be there for 20, 30, or the rest of their life uh, type, you know, type of a thing. But they're in there for 20 or 30 years easily. Um, these guys are career criminals, or they're just doing big time. Um, in the uh, Escape from Denimora series, uh, they, they portray them as um, artists, um, as phenomenal painters, they don't seem to be really too bad. Of you know, a couple of guys, um, but in my book, Denimora, we just basically give you the insight as to who these guys are, where they came from, and what they did to get to Clinton Correctional. Both of them had lengthy criminal careers. Uh, David Sweat, the younger of the two, had shot and killed a deputy sheriff, basically assassinated the deputy sheriff. Um, had, had shot him 15 times after ambushing that deputy sheriff. The deputy sheriff uh, was still struggling, was still alive, and then David Sweat ran him over with a, uh, a vehicle, dragged him across an asphalt parking lot, and uh, as the deputy was still struggling and reaching for his, his uh, service uh, revolver, uh, David uh, Sweat's co-defendant uh, assassinated the deputy sheriff with two to the head through the deputy's hands as he tried to uh, deflect those two rounds as they were being shot at him. Richard Matt, the older of the two, um, had spent numerous times in, incarcerated in New York State Correctional Facilities. Um, he had found uh, an old-timer in the uh, Buffalo, Niagara Falls area <clears throat> that had given him a chance, given him a job, and what did Richard Matt do? He stole from him. Um, so um, Richard Matt's employer cut bait, decided, Richard Matt, you're not the right fit for us. I'm trying to do good by you, and, and you're stealing from me. Richard Matt felt that he was still owed something from the old-timer, went to his house early uh, or late on a December uh, evening. The old-timer answered his door uh, in his pajamas, where he was immediately assaulted by Richard uh, Matt and his co-defendant, uh, downed taken for 27 hours cross-country through New York, through Pennsylvania, into Ohio, uh, repeatedly beaten, uh, repeatedly tortured, and then as they returned back to New York State, uh, Richard Matt snapped uh, the old-timer's neck. Um, ben Stiller didn't portray any of that, uh, but that's what these two guys were, and 
that's how I described them to you. Plus the yeah. years of criminal activity prior to that. Yeah, and 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 I don't know why I was just totally, uh, I was totally in shock. Uh, you know, I was. Yeah. They really made David Sweat look like he's uh, almost like a, a shy, nice type of guy that got in there somehow. And I, it was just, right. he was he was an awful person. Well, he still absolutely. <laughs> but um, absolutely, yeah. The moral compass was definitely heading in the wrong direction. That's for sure. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. You, there's just no. <laughs> You know, and yeah. and so when um, and and the other thing you you pick out, which I found to be interesting, was uh, which I kind of believe in a sense too, is how uh, Sweat really made the story uh, sound like he did all the the master work. He was the the brains and the, the right. whole thing, and, and Matt was just kind of like a, an overweight tubby guy he dragged along. Correct. And but when you look at the history of Richard Matt versus David Sweat, David Sweat had absolutely no previous escapes to his credit. He had no escape history whatsoever. But yet when you look at the history of Richard Matt, Richard Matt, this escape from Clinton Correctional Facility would actually be his fifth documented escape from a correctional facility and his third successful escape. So when it comes right down to it, who do you think was the guy that was the mastermind behind it? I know who I kind of looking and voting for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 that's what I, I thought. Even watching the series, I thought, well, right, because uh, if it was as one sided as he made it, it would almost be like, you know, they it just didn't it didn't make sense to me. But right, right, you know. right. Well, when you when you compare and, and understand. Um, when we did our interviews, we talked to all the players. We had the opportunity, we had the privilege, we had the pleasure of talking with the majority of the, the players in this um, because we were a local. We had access that, that no one else would have ever had um, because we knew who they were. We knew immediately how to get to them um, type of a scenario. And we knew where everything un unraveled and where everything unfolded, and we knew where all the camps were that they had burglarized. So without a doubt, Denimora brings uh, a true picture as to what really happened inside as well as outside the facility. Um, basically, our, our book has no spin, has no agenda. Uh, there's no bullshit. It's just, oh my. just the truth, um, which is, for a lot of people, it's, Wow, that's quite a reality. <laughs> just the truth, you mean, really? <laughs> How it really happened? <laughs> no, and I know, and I know that from from doing my own work and own books that uh, it's crazy sometimes what gets out there and what gets published and what gets actually uh, the most attention. Sometimes is kind of the I don't know a watered down story or or um, right. You know, I don't, I don't get it. Um, now, what well, you, yeah, yeah. Now this this Joyce Mitchell uh, Tilly. Uh, <laughs> um, now, what a character, Mike, Mike Ditka, football player looking. Uh, now, yeah. what? <laughs> oh, I'm terrible. I know. No, what, what, what no is, you're good. <laughs> well, I mean, come on. Like, what is she? You know, first of all, I wonder what you know. But th there has to be something said about the way the system works, in the way that she could get away with this. Like, uh, like, like how you how you portray it was like she was smuggling in all sorts of. Food, absolutely. treats, and absolutely. all sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah. And yeah, Palmer was yeah. was you know he was just kind of a 
a lame guard, and he, he didn't really care. Mm-hmm. But yep. she was um, she was doing all this stuff, and there was reports about her having sex with these these prisoners in room number nine or whatever. And it, it, but nothing right. really happened, you know. Right. Well. Well, understand, Joyce Mitchell started to work for the New York State um, um, Division. It was called Corecraft. So you have New York State Department of Corrections, which is overseeing inmate population and housing of inmates. Corecraft is a division with New York State that um, they build the license plates, Corecraft does. They build um, uh, office furniture. They do street signs. Um, Corecraft employs uh, probably 300, 400 uh, civilian employees and a few thousand inmates. Um, but it's the money-generating uh, entity of the corrections uh, business for New York State. So what happens is you have inmate labor that is generating license plates, office furniture, soap, or in this particular case, a Clinton Correctional clothing inmate clothing as well as staff, officers' clothing. Joyce Mitchell would start working in March of 2008 at Clinton Correctional. She would be um, in the tailor shop area overseeing and supervising inmates as they sewed on their various sewing machines. Um, Joyce Mitchell would actually join her husband, who had been employed a few years prior to her arriving. Within the first year, year and a half, her conduct would be noticed by her co-workers. And her co-workers would, would say to Joyce, you, you can't be doing that. You can't conduct yourself the way that you're conducting yourself. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And understand, Joyce Mitchell was trained before she started day one at Clinton Correctional. She would go through the same training that thousands of employees have gone through previously and thousands of employees that have worked for New York State whether it be Corecraft or the Department of Corrections, have had successful careers. But Joyce Mitchell was just one of those, I'm going to call her the rogue employee that was going to do it her way. Um, and, well, and did you, she do you just, think that she just thought she, that um, nothing would happen, nothing bad, like, like she could just sort of do this sort of thing and, and get away with it and, and not really take it well, serious? With regards to the training, the training specifies and tells you that you're never going to get away with it, that eventually you will get caught. If you're, if you're conducting yourself inappropriately, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when do you get caught. And, and that was not a deterrent to Joyce Mitchell. Joyce Mitchell was going to do it her way, and she was defiant. Um, like I said, she, within a year, year and a half of employment, she would be verbally counseled and it would have no effect. She would kind of come back on the rails a little bit, do what she was supposed to be doing for a short period of time, and then she'd go right back to doing her old things. And by old things, she was doing stuff as simple as, and it seems simple to you and I, um, of smuggling in hard candy or smuggling in baked goods or smuggling in you know, baked treats. Well, in a in a correctional facility, any kind of a violation of the rules, and that's a definite violation of the rules, shows the inmate population that you can be manipulated. If you're not going to follow that rule, then, well, what other rules aren't you going to follow? And it opens that door for exploration on, on behalf of the inmate population, and that's what Joyce did. And her co- co-workers knew that that was exactly what was going to happen to her, and she was she was defiant when they tried to ratchet her back down. 
it got to the point where they actually did counseling memos on her in 2012, basically three years plus from the time that she started employment. Counseling memos did no good. And then basically starting in 2013, her yearly performance evaluations were documenting her inappropriate behaviors. Um, but she just, she kept on digging her heels in and resisting. And she just kept on digging herself deeper and deeper into this introduction of prison contraband to the point where she is introducing hacksaw blades and assorted uh, escape tools uh, into New York State's largest maximum security prison. Do you think that she was um, looking for the thrill? I mean, because um, first of all, you you, you know, because you mentioned her background, how she was working in that... uh, uh, True Stitch. Yeah, True Stitch, and and that's where she met her, Lyle. But they were Mm -hmm. both with other people, and they were having an affair. And just, just like in the prison here, do you think that she liked it? Was it was the excitement of doing it like that, where she could get caught? I, I think I think there's a lot of issues with Joyce Mitchell, <laughs> without a doubt, and and that would without a doubt be one of them. Um, but there, there was just unfortunately out of the thousands, and I understand the New York State Department of Corrections has in the ballpark of thirty thousand employees like any other industry whether it be the catholic church whether it be law enforcement or medical or in this case corrections no matter what what industry you're talking about there's always those loose cannons there's always those one or two that gives everyone the 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 black eye and joyce mitchell was that that one or two percentile she was one of those people that just was going to do it her way no matter what you did, no matter how you tried to rein, rein her back in, she wasn't having it. She was going to do it her way. And unfortunately, her way was going to cause this, this quagmire, cause this mess. Do you think she was just not, because every single thing that she did to help them, like when she's given them candy and <laughs> blades and all these things that she do, and she was making phone calls and stuff to, uh, with mm-hmm. mats daughter no but every time she does this it it gives them something on her absolutely but doesn't she absolutely you think she just not realize it or did you do you think that like that's what i i i I think it was just pure um a power thing on her on i mean how do you figure how she's wrapped and uh, you know what goes on inside that little head of hers um but you look at the contraband that this woman brought in and the course of just a few months prior to the escape, you know, she, she brought in over 70 containers of black and cayenne pepper per the inmates request, 70 containers of black and cayenne pepper. I mean, that in itself, you just got to kind of look at that and go, Jesus, that's a lot of God darn pepper. Um, she brought in, um, you know, eight hacksaw blades. Uh, she brought in um, workout gloves that they were utilizing to keep to protect their hands, um, lighted uh, glasses that they were utilizing in the subterranean tunnels during their escape. And the laundry list just goes on and on of the different pieces of contraband that she brought in. Um, and it's unbelievable. Um, between that and the liquor, uh, the Bacardi 151, uh, the wild yeah, turkey, yeah, sir, yeah. Uh, the contraband food, um, you just look at the laundry list of the stuff that she was bringing in on a regular basis, and you're just going, holy cow. I mean, 
yeah, she was beyond the point of where um, she was in too deep. She was in way too deep years prior, without a doubt. Um, but pathetically, and as the training goes for people that work in the New York State Department of Corrections, they're always told that no matter how deep you're in, you can always you can always save your soul. All you do is, is talk to your supervisors, and and they can uh, they can get you out of the mess that you're in. And, and Joyce Mitchell just refused to do that. Joyce Mitchell knew darn well what she was doing, and and she was going to do it her way. And, and Joyce Mitchell has no one to blame but herself. She can say that she feared for the life of her husband and all that other crap that she's come out with since she's been incarcerated. But that's just her spin to try to get herself out of the incarceration that she's currently, uh, the sentence that she's currently doing. You think she really was in love with David Sweat? I think she had her head so far up her beep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, I mean, she, she, I mean, uh, again, I, I can't even begin to try to understand what was going through that little head of hers. I mean, when you look at, again, the amount of contraband from the lighted glasses to the escape paraphernalia to the um, inappropriate intimate relationship to the physical contact to taking pictures of herself and sending, and, you, and uh, like I said, it's a laundry list. <laughs> I mean, you just, you, you got to look at that and just go, normal people don't do this. I no, mean, no. Holy cow. I mean, between the, the, the tools, the alcohol, the uh, pepper, the contraband, I mean, she, she hit, um, you know, the, the sexually explicit photos of herself. I mean, she just hit on every spectrum that there is to hit on. You know, quite often when the internal investigators of the Department of Corrections does investigations, you have someone that was bringing in alcohol or someone that was bringing in drugs or you had someone that was bringing in, you know, simple contraband, you know, the candy, the paints, the paintbrushes, um, uh, you know, they were bringing in whatever. Joyce Mitchell hit all of them. I mean, I don't think there's, there's a base that she didn't hit. Uh, she uh, she was just the poster child for prison breaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying. Want to get in? I'll tell you. Yeah. Now, now she, yeah. do you think she had sex with more than just those two guys? You you can see the documentation with regards to the inappropriate behavior on her part and inmate Matt. Nowhere in anything that I spoiled any interviews that I had done can I see any kind of a. Um, an, a intimate relationship with sweat. Now, Ben Stiller is showing total opposite of that. And if you listen to any interviews from David Sweat now, uh, David Sweat categorically denies that there was any any kind of a physical relationship between the two of them. I cannot find anything, any documentation, any part of any investigation from any agency that shows that they had any kind of an intimate relationship. Um, did she send him uh, love notes to sweat? Yes. Did she sh uh, send uh, photographs of her in different pieces of undress? Yes. Uh, was there inappropriate behavior, touchies? Yes. But nothing that would go uh, that, that next level of being um, an intimate, uh, I'm going to use uh, that word, uh, relationship uh, with between sweat and Mitchell and not using him as any kind of a credible source but David Sweat 
bangs that same drum that at no time did he ever have any kind of a relationship with Joyce Mitchell. Um, you know, she, she was fascinated with the kid. Um, but you know, like anything else, as far as Matt and Sweat were concerned, she was just simply, a uh, the, um, the, the means that they needed to move contraband in and out of that facility. And Joyce Mitchell provided that for them. Yeah. It just, it just, there's there's still something that's missing there. I mean, I she was she did she I, she must have actually thought for a time that she was going to run off to Mexico and be happy with these guys. And that I will agree with you 100 percent. Yes, so, there, there's no doubt in my mind that in Joyce Mitchell's head um, and wherever her brain would have been, I'm not sure where her brain would be stored in this particular case. Yeah. But somewhere in Joyce Mitchell's fantasy island life that she was living here, um, yes, that that was what her thought was, that her and Matt and Sweat were going to run away to the, the sun, the sand, and the surf and live happily ever after. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind uh, that's a, with that's regards a to that. I mean, I mean, and, oh, yeah. No offense, but, mm -hmm. I mean, come on, look at her. I mean, I'm, it's just, you know... I don't know. I just sort of think that it was it was a crazy notion, but she must have believed it from one of those two guys or both of them must have had her convinced that they they really cared about her. Understand when you're looking at Richard Matt and David Sweat, but mainly Richard Matt. Richard Matt, through his entire life, has been a master of manipulation. Richard Matt, and if you look at the way I wrote the book, Denimora, I document and I show you where he was capable of manipulating people his entire life. Um, and he was, without a doubt, described as a master of manipulation multiple times. I like one of the points you bring up about uh, she had the insurance policy on her husband, yeah. Kyle, but how could right. she collect if they ran off? There it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't put a didn't put a lot of thought into that, did we? You yeah. know, she 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 has this multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars of an insurance policy on her husband that if he shows up dead that uh, she can cash in, but how is she gonna cash in on that? Um well, they say sometimes I guess the nonfiction is stranger than fiction and, and without a doubt, Denamora is that book. Um, it really is. I mean, it, you're looking at this lonely, unhappy wife working in New York State's largest maximum security prison. You're looking at two dangerous convicted killers uh, with the complacent correction officer. Your three-way sex scandal. Um, in the earlier part of the books, we talk about Matt and his Hollywood-California connections. Um, you're looking at the tainted uh, crime scene and the daring escape. And then you're looking at the, the manhunt in an ancient, unforgiving wilderness known as the Adirondack Park, some six million acres. Uh, and then top it off with finger-pointing politicians, and, and I've, you've got yourself a book called Denimora. Kind of crazy. Kind of crazy. What's your thought on Lyle, then? Do you think he was just duped and he had no idea? you think he was just fooled in? Lyle knew exactly what was going on. You know, northern New York, the houses are not that big. Joyce and Lyle live in a very modest home up in uh, Dickinson, New York, which is the middle of doggone nowhere. Um, 
and, and she's buying 70 containers of uh, black and cayenne pepper in a very small window. And Lyle, you know, like, oh, we've got to go to Walmart and get some more cayenne pepper. My God, we're sure doing a lot of cooking. Um, <laughs> Lyle knew darn well what she was doing. And as we document in, in Denimora, we talk about how Lyle had continued to talk to her, uh, telling her that she needed to stop her behavior. And it wasn't going to happen. Joyce was going to do it her way. And, and Lyle didn't have the pants on, I guess, or whatever, and uh, could just ratchet her down and say, no, we're done doing it your way. And, and, and then in turn, when it all turns to mud, Lyle's answer is, well, it's the officer's fault because the officer didn't catch the contraband coming into the jail. So it's, it's somebody else's fault because my wife is bringing in lighted glasses so they can see in subterranean tunnels, bringing in escape paraphernalia, tools, um, hacksaw blades and allen wrenches, uh, bringing in pepper for the premise of throwing off tracking animals, dogs, um, and it's somebody else, and bringing in alcohol, and, and the, the laundry list just continues to go beyond that, and it's somebody else's fault because they didn't stop her from bringing it in. Yeah, that's, that's kind of becoming the, the, the pattern of thinking in America yeah. right now, right? It's it is. Just, you know, you know, can you can go run over someone? You can commit the act, but then right, right away they they're looking for the excuses. Yeah, you know, right. It's somebody else's fault, and I would have never run them over if they hadn't been you know minding their own business and walking across the crosswalk. Absolutely, it's always somebody else's fault, but mine. <laughs> I yeah. agree with you, Al. Yeah, and that's yeah. just sort of. Uh, it, it's bizarre that type of thinking, yeah, driving yeah. Me crazy. Um, yeah. So, what's that? You know, the one thing too. So she was going to give him two painkillers, Lyle, so that he would right. pass out. Correct. Do you think that would actually work? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, the the painkillers, the, um, the the narcotics were supplied by Matt. It was stuff that Matt had been given um, in, from the medical people inside Clinton Correctional uh, that would have the effect to uh, make Lyle, uh, you know, sleep uh, sleep hard uh, type of a scenario. And um, when, of course, when those meds are given, uh, all the inmates do is they cheek it. They just hide it inside between their gums and uh, you know their their teeth, and then they they show the medical people that no, I don't have it in my mouth anymore. I did swallow it like I was supposed to, and then as soon as they walk five feet away, they pull it out of their mouth and they put it in their pocket, and, and they they create themselves a stash of narcotics for whatever designated use they want to use it for later. Um, so even though precautions are put in place, it's not perfect. It's like any other entity. Um, but, um, no, I, I think uh, Joyce was all in. There's no, everything that I've got for documentation and transcripts and uh, transcribed uh, interviews of uh, all the players here, without a doubt, Joyce was in. Why do you think and, she bailed? Uh, <sighs> like, what was it? Killing a Lyle or, or leaving? I... Or? I I'm I'm not really sure, but I, I can tell you this: there's no doubt in my mind that it's it would probably saved her life that she did bail without a doubt because once she provided them the transportation, their need for her was was going to be done, and and they she posed no use to them whatsoever uh, from that point on. She had provided them with again maps. Uh, the premise was that she was to meet them at midnight with their vehicle with a GPS. Uh, she was to include inside that GPS a compass 
tent, sleeping bags, fishing poles, hatchet, rifles, shotgun, ammunition, hacksaw blades. Um, so they, they had everything that they were going to need to be on the run, to be low profile, uh, and to continue to move onto that southern, uh, you know, escape route that they were looking for. Um, their need for her was going to be pretty much done once they had breached that facility. Um, but by her not showing up, all of a sudden that's a game changer. They didn't have a plan B. And I, I can understand the premise behind that because she had always provided them with whatever they needed. She never said no to them from sexual favors to explicit photos to assorted things of contraband from alcohol to escape paraphernalia to whatever. She had, she had never used the word no once. So I can understand why they didn't have a plan B. I, I get it. Hmm. Now, Palmer, the guard, um, I, you, like, you describe him kind of as, 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 as he was described as Chicken Little, um, mm-hmm. kind of like um, the sky is falling type guy, like everything. Yep. What, what, what was his angle? Like, what, why, why was he, uh, like, not putting them through the, the metal detectors and yep. just kind of okay. going around things? Like, what, what, was, his, what was his game? When I looked at Gene Palmer's correctional career, and understand this man had 28 years ballpark at the time of the escape, uh, basically for the, the first quarter century of his career, um, he was a stand-up guy. He, he did what he was supposed to be doing. He was where he needed to be. He was where he was supposed to be. He did his J-O-B, and that's all you can ask from these guys that are behind the walls. Um, understand, uh, Gene Palmer was one of a 1,000 uniformed staff members inside uh, again, New York State's largest maximum security prison, um, and he did his job uh, for a lot of years. Towards the end of his career, um, Gene Palmer kind of came off the rails a little bit with regards to doing his J-O-B the way it was supposed to be done. Um, he got lazy. He got lax. Um, inmate Matt had gone to him and said, you know, any inmate who ever hurts you all, kill the S-O-B, and, and he bought into that. Um, he, he, he thought he kind of befriended Matt because Matt had some artistic talents with regards to painting. And I'm going, oh, my dear God, man, you're going to give up your $100,000 a year job as a New York State correctional officer because some inmate's going to paint you a portrait of your whatever. I mean, holy cow. And if you put it in simple terms like that, you're just like, you know, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Um, but towards the end of his career, he did that. Um he was chasing, uh, I call it chasing the dragons in the prison system. Um, he would go to Matt, and Palmer thought that he was using Matt as a source for information, and pathetically, it was Matt that was really using Palmer. Um, Matt would feed Palmer the information that Matt wanted Palmer to have to eliminate competition or to make Matt uh, and more powerful in the correctional facility setting. And, and by doing that, uh, that's, that's like a eliminating competition. So if you're selling drugs in the correctional facility setting and your competition is, is kicking your butt and selling more drugs than, than you and your guys are selling, what do you do? You get, you get rid of your competition. So what you do is you sick an officer on them. And that was the kind of stuff that Matt would do. He would give Palmer the information that, that was being well paid for, because in prison nothing's for free, um, to make people more powerful. And, and Matt was buying it, or excuse me, uh, Palmer was buying it, uh, you know, buying into the information that Matt was giving him and running with it. Um, and he would make a few simple 
discoveries of contraband or they catch some guys with drugs or catch some guys selling drugs. And Palmer bought into the fact that maybe Matt was kind of working for him, but it was the other way around, unfortunately. The officer ended up actually working for the inmate, showing him favors. And once those favors started to roll, then, of course, inmate Matt, the master of manipulation, would manipulate that and would capitalize in on that and would utilize that to move his contraband that he needed from the tailor shop back to his housing unit and utilize Palmer as his man to make sure that that would happen. Thus, the bypassing of the metal detection equipment, et cetera. Hmm. Yeah, now, now Palmer's done his time in jail. It's a short time, really, a couple of years. Right. It, right. Well, yeah, he did actually just a few months county time. But understand, correctional officer Palmer at no time knew that the 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 moving of the contraband uh, on Matt's body, um, the, namely like the hacksaw blades type of a thing, the correction officer never knew that there was an escape plan or plot. He was never part of an escape plan. He was never, he never got an inkling that that, that, that was the big picture. Um, the officer never knew that they were, that Joyce Mitchell was bringing in dangerous contraband. Um, as far as Palmer knew, the correction officer Palmer knew was that there were some paintings being done for a civilian employee, which is again against the rules. Um, and he was turning a blind eye to that. He was turning a blind eye to running Matt through metal detecting equipment because he thought that Matt was kind of working for him. Uh, but again, we've already touched on that point. Um, but at no time did he know that there was an escape plot. Right. Well, will he get his pension still or? Absolutely. Oh yeah. yeah as well as Joyce Mitchell also gets her pension. And and she was oh yeah like great system isn't it yeah. <laughs> welcome to New York yeah <laughs> you wonder why it's as messed up as it is right then, thank God the lawmakers have finally you know seen that light coming and it was on the front of that train that almost hit them um, and they've come to the conclusion that oh golly gee maybe we need to put something in place that if you're going to do dumb that it's going to cost you big and in this case um, Joyce Mitchell. Uh, as she sits at Bedford Hills Correctional, when she reaches the age of 55, can actually start drawing her pension from the New York State Department of Corrections and this the entity known as Corecraft. Yeah, it's crazy, huh? Yeah. Well, she's only, she, she only got like five years or something, didn't she? Um, yeah, she got uh, two and change to seven and change. And she'll do most of it because she was such an embarrassment to New York State's uh, pol you know, political uh Right. leaders that uh, they're not real happy with her so you know as many people as they're letting out there <sighs> I hate to go down the political slide here um, but but part of the reason why this escape happened was because of politics and cutbacks uh, you know, and, it needs, and it needs to and you haven't gotten quite that far yet um, yeah, your, I, your, I, I was getting your, into that. Your, you were yeah, talking about how but, those, those certain areas weren't being um, right. banned anymore. Yeah. They weren't being banned. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, the, the wall tower closest to where the inmates actually escaped from hadn't been manned in two decades. Um, that's a definite problem. But the inmates knew that that wasn't manned, so they knew that no one would be able to see them wherever they popped up out of the, out of the manhole um, type of a thing once they breached that perimeter wall. Um, but there was no one in that wall tower, hadn't been in that wall tower for over two decades uh, as a cost-saving measure. The subterranean tunnels, like same same story. Subterranean tunnels, there were um, 
the officers were were named the nickname was the the tunnel rats and the tunnel rats were the officers that would wear grubby ass clothes and their uniform shirts because they were in the tunnels all day and the tunnels are disgustingly dirty um they're the subterranean tunnels underneath these housing units and they're just filled with cobwebs and muck and mire and and just it's nasty down there um but again, some bureaucrat out of Albany, on the state capitol, had decided that, well, you know, we're paying guys to go down into these subterranean tunnels and wiggle around on a regular basis, and that's, you know, it doesn't seem like it's really cost efficient. Oh, so let's stop doing that, and, and and that's what that's what happened. It was bureaucrats out of the capitol who had decided that wall towers didn't need to be manned and that these these jobs didn't need to be filled. So when you are a correction officer working for the New York State Department of Corrections and you work your eight-hour shift, eight hours and 15 minutes, uh, you work eight hours and 15 minutes with the premise of you're going to do more with less. Uh, we expect we're, we're going to have you not only doing your job but a few other jobs. Uh, there will be no lunch hour and no lunch time, better yet, an hour. Um, you eat your lunch on the fly if you're fortunate enough to gobble something. Uh, there's no breaks, and, and that's how a New York State correction officer lives uh, and works. There's no lunch hour, there's no lunch half hour, there's no lunch designated lunch time, uh, there's no morning break, there's no afternoon break. Um, it's an eight-hour and 15-minute shift, and, and if you're lucky enough to gulp, grab, and go, and uh, eat a sandwich on the fly, then we're happy for you, but if you don't, oh well. Um, they've eliminated so many posts that the concept of do more with less is the model of the day in their attempt to right-size. Uh, they continue to manipulate and change the laws so that housing units that were originally built, engineered, and designed for 50 men are now holding 60, but yet no staffing levels that were ever changed. Uh, at one point in time during my career, gymnasiums that were meant for no other than recreational activities were housing units. Um, because there was such an influx of, of inmates due to the laws. So what happened is lawmakers changed the laws to reduce inmate population, to make the numbers look better, to make them look like they don't have as many inmates coming in so we can we don't need as many people watching them. And, and it's, a, it's a numbers game that bureaucrats and politicians play, uh, putting the general public at risk. And, and they still continue to play the game today. Uh, we have correctional facilities that are double bunked today and no additional staffing. We have inmates that are two to a cell and the cells were designed for one man. So you take a look at a, at a cell that was designed for one man that has a bunk, a, a locker, a small locker and a toilet and a sink in it, now has an additional bunk in there, bunk beds, and then they stack the two lockers on top of themselves. And so you expect two grown ass men or two grown ass women in these double bunk cells to cohabitate and, and for it to work out well. Um, it doesn't work out well. So this, um, this, this they, escape didn't really um, change things? Absolutely not. No, matter of fact, the only thing that it has succeeded upon doing is the staff paid the ultimate price. Um, right after the escape at Clinton Correctional, um, they, they locked down the facility and understand a lockdown, as you read, Denimora, uh was asked for prior to the escape because the administration knew that something was amiss but couldn't quite put their thumb on it. 
the inmate population knew that the escape was coming. Um, but when you're doing big time, it's, it, it's, it's not very good for your health to bring that to anybody's attention. It's a good way to get yourself killed in a maximum security prison. Um, but no, not, the only thing that's changed is, is the staff has paid a huge price. Um, they're called tilly totes is, is a perfect example. One of the things that's changed since the escape is all staff members walking into the facility with their lunches or their personal belongings are now have to be housed in what's uh, a, a see-through tote, a see-through clear lunch pail or a carrying tote. So if you're a female, um, all your personal products and personal items are in a see-through bag, so there's no secrets. Um, if you're uh, any other staff member, if you're on any kind of a medication or if you're going to have a ham sandwich or a sub or a soda or whatever, your Coke product is uh, or your Pepsi product is there for the whole world to see. There is no secrets as a staff member. Um, but for the inmate population, their life's never changed a bit. Um, yeah. Staffing levels never got any better. Um, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and unfortunately, Al, while you and I are having this chat right now, somewhere there's an inmate who's currently scratching, chipping, cutting, and digging his way out of a correctional facility while we're having this chat right now because there is a kink in the armor because of these continuous cutbacks. And, and unfortunately, New York State's going to see more escapes, um, but they're not privy to it. You know, Texas, California, you know, the, the list goes on. You know, you got a lot of states out there that have the same problem. It's, there's a lot of places where you can cut infrastructure like bridges and bridge maintenance, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Air, aircraft maintenance for uh, commercial airlines, and staffing your prisons are probably the three little things that should be on the very bottom yeah. of the list for things that you're going to skimp on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And unfortunately, politicians continue to think that they can continue to uh, skimp on the, the staffing levels. Or in New York State's case, they're, they're looking at shutting down three more facilities because, again, the lawmakers and the people in power, the bureaucrats, continue to manipulate numbers. Uh, they're, they're letting people out that, are, that have killed police officers. And they're putting them out on parole now. And yeah. you're just, anybody that's in law enforcement is just looking at that going, what in the hell are we doing? What have we become that we're, we're going we're to send cop killers back out on the street because they're what? They're, they're okay now? Yeah, you know, they don't want to kill, they don't want to it, it, it's, it's beyond crazy. Yeah. Um, but, but it's happening every single day and nobody seems to be noticing it because it's not affecting them yet until right. they're in the wrong place at the wrong time and they cross paths with one of these monsters who's out on parole because it's just a rotating door. You see, the politicians don't tell us that, but it's just a rotating door. that These cats are coming right back in as quick as they're letting more of them out. But, but they're trying to manipulate the numbers so that we feel warm and fuzzy when they spoon-feed us that we're going to save all this money on closing three more correctional facilities in New York State. I'm going to look at all the money I'm saving you. Yeah. And, and it's, wow. it's, it's because we're double bunking and we're doing less with more, and it's it's, it's not saving us any money. This escape didn't save us anything. It no. cost us over a million dollars a day just on the state level, and we talk about what it cost on the federal level on this escape. Just crazy. It's just crazy. Yeah, uh, you know. But these aren't the days of feeling warm and fuzzy, anyway. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so that's you know it's gonna watch your back, 
buy your place somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, now, okay, so now let's give out your information. So people, the, the book, of course, is available, Danamora, and uh, Charles A. Gardner, and it's on Amazon Correct. and great bookstores. Now, you yeah. have a website yeah. as well? We, we have a website. It's charlesagardner.com. Um, again, the book is Denimora, and it's Two Escape Killers, Three Weeks of Terror, and the Largest Manhunt Ever in New York State. Uh, right now, we're, we're on a five-star rating for Amazon. So if you're a true crime junkie, if, if you want to read about a, uh, a couple of dangerous convicted killers, if you want to read about a three-way sex scandal with a Hollywood twist, if you want to read about a daring escape and a tainted crime scene, a manhunt in an ancient, unforgiving wilderness. Have we got a nice nonfiction <laughs> for you? I'll tell you. this book is actually yeah. This book is actually dedicated to law enforcement as well. Fantastic! So. It's, it's a great book, and, and we recommend it. I um, will have it also up on the website, so people that are listening can just do one click if they listen through the website or through the app. Wow! So quite a story, uh, Charles Gardner. Thank you for doing the show. Al, thank you for the interest and, and thank you for your time. It's been it's been a hoot talking with you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.